Welcome to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. My name is Simon Garnett, Senior Editor at Eurozine. Eurozine is a network of cultural magazines, including more than 90 partner journals and associated publications and organisations from across Europe and beyond. On Eurozine.com, we publish selected content from the network translated into English and many other European languages. In this podcast, the editors of Eurozine will be talking to partner editors from the network, as well as authors published on the website about topics and issues that we think are particularly interesting for you, our readers and listeners. In this episode, I am delighted to be talking to Elliot Higgins, the founder and executive director of Bellingcat. Bellingcat, as most listeners will know, is an independent international collective of researchers, investigators and citizen journalists using open source and social media investigation in the fields of conflict, crime and human rights abuses. Established in 2014 as a citizen's journalism platform, the techniques for which Bellingcat is famed have become a staple of journalistic practice. Two stories above all have been integral to Bellingcat's development. The shooting down of the MH17 flight over eastern Ukraine on the 17th of July 2014 and the chemical weapons attacks carried out by the Syrian army since 2017. In the MH17 case, Bellingcat has succeeded in reconstructing events immediately before and after the incident, including the chain of command responsible for the atrocity. And in Syria, Bellingcat has proven that the Assad regime continued to use sarin and chlorine bombs against the civilian population, even after it had claimed to have destroyed its chemical weapons arsenal in August 2013. On the 9th of March 2020, the Joint Investigation Team, or JIT, trial of four men charged with murder in connection with the shooting down of MH17 opened in Amsterdam. The trial reopened on the 8th of June, having been adjourned at the end of March. And, turning to Syria, on the 8th of April 2020, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, released its report on two chemical weapons attacks at Al-Atamina, northern Syria, on the 24th and 30th of March 2017. I caught up with Elliot Higgins at the beginning of June to talk about MH17 and the OPCW report, as well as more broadly about the disinformation that surrounds both MH17 and chemical weapons use in Syria. We also talked about Bellingcat's organisational character between accountability campaigner and journalistic platform and the fraught question of journalistic independence and objectivity in today's media environment. First, I asked Elliot whether Bellingcat had cooperated with the JIT investigation and whether they would be giving evidence. 
Uh, no, I mean, we're not a witness in the trial. We've been handing, I mean, we help handing over information to the joint investigation team as we found it. I mean, it's generally all open source, so it's out there anyway. Um, the reason we do that is because we're aware that once we publish an investigation, there's a good chance that if it's, you know, if we, we found some Russian officer and he's got a social media profile, that social media profile is going to be deleted very quickly. Um, so we ha- we've been showing that stuff to the joint investigation team and giving them a reasonable amount of time to um, preserve that before it's um, deleted if we uh, publish something so um, that's kind of been how we've kind of been uh, involved so far there's been a couple of incidents where people have approached us saying that I have this you know video or this photograph Um, would you like to have it and because we've recognized the value of it to the joint investigation team's case we've we've connected them directly with the joint investigation team so they can um, you know do whatever they want to do with them as a witness Um, so you know for us the priority has been uh, making sure that the um, you know the you know the joint investigation team has the best chance possible rather than trying to get all these scoops you know without giving them a fair chance to actually preserve this evidence this raises questions about the role of a journalistic operation like yourselves in relation to that of an official body like the jit whose mandate is to deliver legal justice can that be problematic uh, does it raise questions for your methodology Bellingcat is a very uh, kind of an odd organisation because, I mean, we're often seen as being a journalism organisation, but we actually do a lot of work in other areas. We've been doing a lot of work around uh, justice and accountability. Um, you know, we because of the work we've done with MH17 and on Syria, um, we've had a lot of interest from bodies who work in kind of those areas of justice and accountability, not just the joint investigation team, yeah. um, but, you know, the International Criminal Court, the IIIM on Syria, uh, various parts of the United Nations. Um, so what we've been trying to do there is uh, develop a process for um, open source investigation and archiving um, where unlike with MH17 where when we've been asked to kind of share stuff with uh, things like the European Court of Human Rights case we've had to kind of go back and rewrite what we've already written and find broken links and you know hope something has been delayed forever we actually have as we're investigating as part of our process an archiving process and a process that means whatever we write can just be kind of handed over as a case file um, so we've been doing that already uh, in the last year focusing on uh, Saudi airstrikes in Yemen and with that we've been um, using working with the global legal action network um, to basically build kind of case files that can then be used in various circumstances so at the moment we've submitted what we've collected so far um, to a UK government inquiry into um, arms export agreements to Saudi Arabia and whether or not they're being violated. Um, so, you know, one of the big questions is actually how is this kind of open source evidence used in courts? Because no one's really used it um, in a significant way so far. Even with the joint investigation team case, that's they've reached out directly to witnesses. Um, you know, they've got the kind of original files. Um, so, what we do with geolocation, you know, identifying where stuff was happening, in a way that's not the final evidence that would often be we imagine would be used in these cases, but it's a pathway to find, you know, witnesses, to find kind of the original source documents and those kind of details. Um so a really big focus of Bellingcat at the moment is building that kind of justice and accountability kind of capability and also making it something that we can kind of package up and share with other organizations who also want to do open source investigations themselves. Um and you know a really big issue around this is, you know, for example, with Syria, we've got literally, you know, 
over a million, for example, YouTube videos that have been archived uh, by the Syrian Archive. And um, that's an organization we've been working with. And the challenge there is how do we make that searchable? Because those videos generally don't have much metadata beyond the title they had on YouTube and when they were uploaded on YouTube. And that could be inaccurate. There could be all kinds of details in there that you want to add as additional metadata. And if you can turn all that collected archive information into usable data sets, um, then you can actually do a lot more interesting things with that than just kind of find interesting videos. You can look at patterns of behavior. You can kind of use that to visualize entire kind of landscapes and show how things have changed over time. Um, so that's kind of where we're focusing a lot of our efforts on at the moment because because of MH17 in Syria, there has been this recognition of the value of online open source investigation. The MH17 story fell into a larger information war around the annexation of Crimea and the, and the conflict in Donetsk. Is disinformation on MH17 and specifically Bellingcat's reporting of it consistent with broader patterns? Yeah, um, so so really um, what we saw is that there's a kind of, um, kind of circular thing going on. So in the initial aftermath of MH17 being shot down, there were kind of various theories proposed by people online. And these weren't experts, they were just, you know, random people on the internet uh, and claims being made. Um, there were also made claims made by the kind of separatists themselves. And then on July 21st, 2014, we had this press conference um, but from the Russian Ministry of Defence, presenting basically what was, they said was their evidence of what happened with MH17. Now, they did a few interesting things here. First of all, some of the stuff they presented had basically clearly been nicked off the internet. Um, and, you know, one of them, for example, was the video showing the missile launcher travelling through the town of Luhansk, which was separatist-controlled, uh, missing a missile filmed on July 18th, was actually filmed in a completely different location under Ukrainian government control. And this was literally just stolen off the internet from some website. And, it, it, and it's not something that is like, oh my God, that's so surprising with Russia because they do that all the time. I, I've not seen them doing it since at least 2013 with the um, Sarah attacks that took place in Damascus, where they literally, their entire narrative was based off internet conspiracy theories. Um, and you see them do this time and time again. If there's a, a report from the OPCW on MH17 or whatever it may be, they're usually they're just repeating internet conspiracy theories because they rarely come up with new ideas themselves. Um, then also what they were doing is they say, oh, we have these, you know, satellite images, we have these, uh, you know, this radar data, and it appears to show this, what does it mean? So they ask the questions about the evidence they're presenting, rather than making clear statements about what it means. And then what happens is the kind of online community, the Russian media, they take those questions, and they try to answer them in their extremely biased very poor way and then what you see along uh, later on is the russian government will pick up those kind of uh, they'll plant the seeds and then they'll harvest them later for disinformation and you see this pattern happen with the opcw you have to see it happening with mh17 you see it happen with you know broad, more broadly in syria um so this pattern of behavior repeats but even within that july 21st press conference they made you know basically four or so main claims all of which have been proven to be completely untrue. They presented satellite imagery showing these missile launches to be moving from Ukrainian bases, and they turned out to be misdated and altered. And this is just a few days after MH17 has been shot down. 298 people are dead, and Russia is already putting out fake satellite images. They're lying about video footage, and they're making various false claims. 
even to the point that they presented this radar image that they said showed just after MH17 was shot down, there was an aircraft that they said was an Su-25, Ukrainian Su-25 near MH17 within a few kilometers. Um, and they asked why it was there. Why is this Su-25 there? And that basically launched a whole range of conspiracy theories that went on for years saying an Su-25 shot it down. But then two years, but what happened is they said they had lost this radar data and they couldn't share it with the Dutch Safety Board or the Joint Investigation Team. And then two years later, in September 2016, the joint investigation team uh, was about to give a, their first press conference. And just a week before that, miracle of miracles, the Russians managed to find this missing radar data. And a couple of days before the joint investigation team press conference, they present this radar data clearly as an attempt to control the narrative and undermine the joint investigation team press conference. But the crazy thing is, this same radar data exactly the same radar data from this July 21st, 2014 press conference, they now say shows something completely different. They sh It shows MH17, and they say there was nothing within 30 kilometers of MH17 before it was shot down. And there's no aircraft near it whatsoever. So they've contradicted their own claims from two years earlier. Not only that, but it also shows the flight path of MH17, which they'd said in the two years earlier, had been changed by air traffic control in Ukraine, except now it shows it hadn't been changed. But they don't acknowledge that, they don't recognise that, they just, um, you know, they just say it, and they know there will be a the Russian media, this kind of online community, who will kind of just retergate it and just, you know, keep, you know, believing this stuff, and they're just kind of recycling it and coming up with their own ideas, which Russia then picks up and uses again for themselves. Um, and we see this time and time again. I mean, even within the European Court of Human Rights um, case, during the MH17 trial, it was revealed that um, they were, there was audio analysis from uh, this group called Bonanza Media, who's run by a couple of um, former Russia Today journalists and a, uh, basically an MH17 trooper, where they had this audio analysis done. We've had this examined, um, and this analysis is complete bunk, but they were using it in an actual trial trial lawyers had used this to present as evidence in the European Court of Human Rights case which is completely insane but also quite beneficial to the people who are trying to you know make, make Russia responsible because they can show that this is complete nonsense but in a way they poison their own well by sharing this disinformation because when it gets into a courtroom it's very difficult to say something's you know fake news. Once the evidence is presented in court do you see these kinds of disinformation narrative fade? Do people not predispose towards the facts or to their opinion? Does a process of rational debate assert itself? Um, it might be a bit early to say with the um, court case because we haven't seen the evidence presented, but based off experience and what I'm seeing already is definitely not. I mean, they just will find new reasons to say that the evidence that's being presented in court is fake. And the thing is, What's important here is they don't need to think about kind of the evidence holistically. They don't have to look at every single element of the case and see if it all fits together. They just have to say one pixel is out of place on an image and they, in their view, the entire case is fake. They don't need to explain a narrative of actually what happened if it is fake because they don't, they're never challenged like that. They just say, oh, this, this photograph was maybe taken in the wrong place and they're probably wrong about it, but then they decide that means the entire case is untrue. Um, and, and this is partly, I think, fueled by how online communities operate now, because if you have any opinion, what it, no matter what it's on, 
you know, the earth is flat, leech is good medicine, you should, you know, inject UV light into your brain to cure coronavirus, you know, MH17 was shot down by Ukraine, there's no chemical weapon use in Syria, any of those ideas, you'll find a like-minded online community who will basically agree with you. And there'll be bloggers within that, there'll be, um, you know, Twitter personalities, there'll be, you know, people on TikTok now, I suppose. But you'll have a kind of alternative media ecosystem to consume and um, basically never have your opinions properly challenged. And what happens is if you do disagree with that community, you'll just find another community who agrees with you. And that, in, an, in the end, kind of creates more and more kind of um, extreme behavior and more extreme communities around certain topics. So, And often the more extreme they are, the noisier they are on the internet because they're kind of madder and more kind of, uh, they want their voices heard more. So often, you know, around chemical weapon use in Syria or MH17, you have a very small group of people trying to make a lot of noise. Now, what's the interesting dynamic with MH17 and Syria and stuff involving Russia is the Russian media will often take those voices and give them a platform of Russia Today or Sputnik or inside the Russian language media. Or even in some cases, the Russian government themselves will take those people and take them to the UN to present their evidence. Um, and so this is kind of an added dynamic on top of what you're already seeing with these alternative media ecosystems. And I think the most damaging example of that we're actually seeing is not related to Russia, but what's happening in America at the moment with coronavirus, where basically Donald Trump gives a daily briefing and says something insane. Uh, Breitbart and friends, you know, the alt-right kind of media ecosystem they kind of uh, launder it uh, and then that goes back to fox news who then kind of um you know make it a bit more mainstream and donald trump sees that so it's like a human centipede of misinformation where both ends are stitched together so you create and this is what happens when you sacrifice the truth to basically serving power which is basically what we're seeing in america with basically the right-wing media and the republican party at the moment and it's you know it looks like with coronavirus it's going to lead to lots of people actually dying because of it because misinformation is becoming mainstreamed and propaganda is basically replacing journalism to turn to the opcw reports on the chemical weapons attacks at al Latamin and syria did it tell you anything that you didn't already know what did you find particularly interesting in the report? It, it was very interesting for me because one of the, I mean, we, we looked at the March 30th attack very closely and there we there was a lot of debris um, recorded by um, people on the scene. Now, the one, one really interesting thing about these two attacks is um, within the kind of alternative narrative that these are false flag attacks, we obviously had the Karshay Kun attack on April 4th, which, you know, had a lot of media attention. It had a US response. It yeah. got kind of lots of attention from the Russians and uh, the kind of conspiracy theorists and the chemical weapon troopers who kind of wrote their alternative theories up that then was picked up by the Russians and promoted. But these other two attacks on, you know, in March, yeah. you know, just within 10 days of the um right, Kahn attack, 30th, yeah. yeah, they weren't, um, they didn't have that same amount of co coverage. In fact, the March 24th report, I mean, we looked into this, we couldn't find a single post on social media about it. We couldn't find a single piece of open source information about it. It was like it didn't even happen. Um, and in March 30th attack, there was, even, you know, there's a few videos, but not a lot. And at the time, it wasn't even noticed. People didn't realize it was a sound attack. Um, and we only really went back to looking at it when the OPCW said they, they were looking into a sound attack that happened there several months later. Then we found this these videos and this debris and what was really interesting there is uh, there's this filler cap. In fact, two filler caps recovered from the debris on the March 30th attack that was identical in every way to the April 4th attack in Khan Sheikhoun. And the OPCW had said that filler cap was uniquely consistent with a Syrian chemical bomb. Um, that 
piqued my interest because the Russians had published a diagram showing two Syrian chemical bombs as part of their defense of the Syrian government, not realizing that this was probably the first open source imagery we had of these bombs. And by using these diagrams, we were able to establish the debris from March 30th matched almost perfectly with an M4000 Syrian chemical bomb that would be filled with sarin, and therefore the filler cap would be uniquely consistent with an M4000 uh, chemical bomb from Karshane Kuhn. And then with the March 24th attack, um, we managed eventually after, you know, talking to um, uh, the Syrian civil defense to get like one video of the site. And they had they said they had more, but they were just sharing it with the OPCTW. Um, and that showed a piece of debris, a kind of really heavy chunk. And we thought at the time that could be the ballast from the front of these bombs, which is part of these diagrams. And one thing this uh, new OPCW report is actually look at that piece and actually they measured it and then they showed that this was actually from the ballast. It fit perfectly with the front end of this. And along with the other evidence, they could say that in both these attacks, the M4000 chemical bomb was used. And that was, uh, I mean, I, I spent like two years trying to establish the identity of these bombs. So it was very satisfying to see them agree with my conclusions that were just based off, you know, piecing stuff together and working with the likes of forensic architecture to recreate the debris of the bombs. What was also very interesting is how they specifically addressed um, kind of what the conspiracy theorists would say that the evidence was planted by saying that, you know, it would be ridiculous to go to the lengths of, um, you know, setting all of this up and then just not covering it at all. Uh, you know, having the Syrian kind of opposition media cover it and try and make a thing of it because the amount of effort that must have gone into it was would have been absolutely vast to fake it to a level where you could kind of make it look this much like an actual attack. Um, so those kind of were the two elements that really stood out for me. But I think the March 24th attack was very significant because that's an example that shows that these attacks do happen, even with sarin, and that they don't necessarily get covered um, even on social media by the Syrian opposition, um, you know, media centers or armed groups, um, you know, maybe, maybe for a variety of reasons, but it just doesn't mean because a chemical attack happens, we'll definitely find out about it. You, you ask someone how many chemical weapons attacks do you think there's been in Syria, they'll never go up to, you know, over 300. But, you know, having spent, I mean, I've been tracking this since, you know, early 2013 and looking at all these different attacks. And there are far more attacks happening in Syria than people would realize. Um, so these people are kind of part of these kind of alternative media things, these kind of chemical weapon troopers. They generally don't understand that. They just don't see this because they only react to what's in the media. They don't spend every single day of their life looking at every single video from Syria, looking at chemical weapons attacks and kind of obsessing over that side of it. Because really for them, it's about... Um, you know, reliving the traumas of 2003 and the build-up to the Gulf War. It's, um, I like to call it Gulf War derangement syndrome, yeah. where they see everything through the lens of the build-up to the 2003 Gulf War. And that, that informs all their understanding of the world and all their decision-making and all their opinions. And that's why they see, you know, even Peter Hitchens, you know, how they sold it in the mail is it's another dodgy dossier. Yeah. And um, that's just not how the world works. It's it's and there's vast amounts of evidence that the Syrian government has been using chemical weapons. And this isn't just one dodgy dossier. This is you know years and years of research by multiple organisations, huge amounts of witnesses, you know, video evidence, stuff that we you know wouldn't even imagine have happened having in two thousand and three. It's very clear chemical weapons have been used, but they see this purely through the lens of the build up to the Iraq war and dodgy dossiers. And really if I mean if the US really, really wanted to invade Syria, they definitely 
would have done it by now. They can definitely find excuses to invade countries. I mean, we've seen that in the past. Um, and so it's, I, I kind of find it ridiculous, this argument that, oh, they're faking all these chemical weapon attacks so the Americans can invade. When America, if they wanted to, they would have done it. Does disinformation about chemical weapons in Syria overlap with disinformation on other topics, or is it a quite distinct narrative? I think what it is, is you, you kind of have um, these communities, online communities that kind of develop, and some of them come from kind of real world stuff like the Stop the War Coalition. So you find some members of the Stop the War Coalition are now kind of part of the kind of online chemical weapon truth for community, um, which is in itself kind of is overlapping a lot with the broader Syria community who were the kind of um, online bloggers who were kind of, you know, making a lot of <laughs> noise about it in 2012. Um, and it, some of that also comes from what we saw in um, Libya because there was the kind of anti-NATO crowd you know anti-intervention crowd around um, Libya so what you have is kind of almost this Venn diagram of these different groups and the center of gravity that draws these kind of different parts of the diagram together are personalities websites um, you know promotion through certain kinds of media and so you, you saw over time the kind of anti-intervention crowd kind of coming together with the pro-acid crowd and the kind of more conspiracy, really conspiracy-minded, you know, uh, Gulf War derangement syndrome kind of uh, crowd. Um, and, you know, they have personalities and websites that they all kind of come across and visit. So they have this alternative media ecosystem that is then kind of created. Um, then I think one interesting dynamic with um, Syria and Russia is you had a kind of, with MH17 and uh, what was happening in Ukraine, you had a kind of separate uh, pro-Russian, pro-Putin uh, crowd, and then a kind of MH17 truther crowd. And they, again, kind of came together. The centre of gravity, again, was websites and personalities and basically shared interests. And then when Russia started bombing Syria, those kind of groups of the kind of Syria community that had developed and the Russian community that had developed kind of started to merge together because they then had a shared interest and now what you're seeing as well is um you know with trump for example because in that community trump was seen as the anti-hillary clinton and anti-hillary hillary clinton was going to bomb syria for example yeah. because of chemical weapons a lot of them became very pro-Trump and some of the pro-Trump crowds was kind of drawn into that. Not so much as some of the other areas because, uh, you know, there is a kind of US political aspect there that's not covered. But, and also the same with the kind of alt-right as well. You saw alt-right media personalities getting more involved with the conspiracy theories around um, Syria in particular to a lesser extent and MH17, maybe because that's more of a clear-cut case. But um now what you're seeing now is coronavirus is becoming a big part of, you know, coronavirus conspiracy theories are becoming part of that because the kind of communities who, you know, that they're part of are basically conspiracy theorists. And that is in a way the one thing that brings them all together is they are inclined to believe in conspiracy theories. So what you're seeing it now is a interesting and quite amusing dynamic where you're seeing a lot of splits now because these coronavirus conspiracy theories about 5g and stuff like that are bridged too far for some of the people in these communities yes. so now you see they're turning against each other and because these communities as i've mentioned before tend to lead to extreme behavior and these people find their self-worth online through demonstrating their 
um, loyalty to the cause, whatever that may be. If someone starts saying, oh, no, you're wrong about um, coronavirus being caused by 5G, they really hate each other for doing that. They really fall out with each other because they're so extreme in their beliefs. And that's just the way they kind of operate as people. Um, so now you're seeing all these people kind of falling out with each other over coronavirus. So that has been, you know, an interesting dynamic to watch. Of course, there's also disinformation about disinformation. At the beginning of May, Bellingcat published a piece by Eric Toller showing how a New York Times story on Kremlin orchestrated disinformation on US medical science was based on a false all roads leads to the Kremlin narrative. There was an element of this as well, of course, in the 2016 US election meddling affair. And it's also, of course, ramping up again uh, in the in the run up to the presidential elections in the US this year, uh, so how does Bellingcat navigate this complex terrain? Yeah, it's um, something that we've been kind of observing more and more. And in a way, you see the same kind of communities, these alt media communities around kind of Russian disinformation forming uh, as much as you do on other topics where you have people who are sure everything is Russian disinformation. I mean, we've been accused of being working for the um, Russian FSB because of all the articles we've been publishing on the DRU by the kind of anti-Russian crowd which is completely bonkers. I mean, that's a hell of a long game for Russia to be playing to do that. Um, but th th this is also a problem. I mean, sometimes it's just bad, um, a, a kind of a misunderstanding of what this uh, these sites are. Like the Russia file, which was the subject of this New York Times article, yeah. it's just some blog no one really cares about, and it's part of one of these alt-media communities. But because they kind of um, misinterpreted some of the information they were seeing, I think that set them down a path where they thought, oh, this must be a disinformation campaign. The, the thing is, I think often people think they're, you know, um, interacting with rational actors when it comes to some of these pro-Russian types. And these people are saying stuff that is, to an ordinary person, completely bonkers. And therefore, you think, how can a normal person believe such a thing? Oh, it must be because they're being influenced somehow. But they don't understand, because they don't understand this kind of dynamic I've explained of these online communities that form around certain topics and how they create alternative media ecosystem that's kind of feed into, you know, their understanding of the world. And they can be completely convinced of what they believe. Um, you see this kind of people don't recognize that as a thing. And because they don't recognize that as something that's happening, they assume there must be some other motivation behind it. And often that motivation is, oh, they must be paid to say this. Oh, they must be working for Russia. When really it's just because they're true believers in their cause. And I, I think understanding that dynamic is actually really, really important. And that is one thing I see so often I move journalists and think tanks and all kinds of organizations who are working on disinformation particularly focused on russia they don't understand that and that's actually really damaging and dangerous because they then start making conclusions that are based off their own um bubble basically they exist in a bubble and they don't realize there's other bubbles um so that is uh, that's something i think at balancat that we're kind of very aware of and again it's not just on russia we've seen this this same kind of thing happening uh you know syria chemical weapons you know, Eric also did a really good piece on the Flat Earthers and they've created their own kind of internet bubble where they kind of, you know, exist and they have plenty of people explaining exactly why the Earth is flat and how it's really, really not round. To recognise how these communities operate and that they exist in the first place, 
you can't really have a sensible discussion about things like Russian disinformation if you don't understand that not everyone actually thinks they're sharing disinformation, they think they're sharing the truth. Are these irrational discourses that are immune to empiricism just the price we're paying for having a free public sphere? I think part of it is fueled by um, basically um, social media algorithms. I mean, you go to YouTube and you click on a video because you think it's funny. You're like, oh, the earth is flat, ha ha. You click on it and then you get 10 recommendations for flat earth videos and you can never escape that for the rest of your life. Um, and I, I think that kind of algorithmic kind of, you know, if you can start getting into stuff, you will find you will find that community thanks to the algorithm pointing you towards it. And when the social media try, companies try and push back by saying, okay, we're not going to let having this disinformation it allows these communities to do their absolutely favorite thing, which is play victim, because they love being martyrs. They love being martyrs for their cause. They show that they're the most, you know, they're important because they've been banned by the big, powerful social media companies. Therefore, what they were saying was dangerous. And if they're dangerous, then they're important. And you see this time and time again. I mean, it's like with this New York Times piece that we just mentioned, where this website, the Russia file, was kind of um, a subject of the piece. Of course the person who founded that loved that because it gave them loads of attention it made them look like they were way more important than they really were and i've seen this happen time and time again where because um some kind of newspaper or misinformation researcher makes a mistake and says oh this person is a russian bot or something like that and then they say i'm not a russian bot. i'm a real person why are you attacking me you obviously hate everything i'm saying and you're powerful therefore it must be good what i'm saying because of you know some speaking truth to power and you know all, all that nonsense um and this, I think, is where um, you can, you, again, people don't recognize the damage they do when they kind of try and push back against this stuff. But it's a really hard thing to answer. I think as well, we really need to look at how we educate children about the Internet because we kind of have this, oh, OK, well, the Internet, you know, they'll figure it out by themselves. So go online and they'll figure out what the truth is. You know, people are generally intelligent um, but because the Internet is so good and making you things that support your own viewpoints and they not have it ever challenged unless you go on Twitter and purposely argue with people. And then you're just basically thinking you're being a you know, Twitter warrior for your courts. Um, you don't really teach people how to understand, you know, the dynamics behind that. And to be fair, you know, most people don't really understand the dynamics, even the people who work on the, you know, the topics quite frequently. So I think at a very early age, I, I, I saw, I think, uh, half of 11 year olds in the United Kingdom have a smartphone now. And to me, that's really scary because that means they've got access to YouTube where they can see all kinds of insane stuff and they can, you know, start believing it. And unless at an early age, and I'm talking, you know, 10, 9, you know, even earlier, really start addressing what the internet is. And it's not just about kind of being, you know, abused by pedophiles and stuff like that we have to warn our kids about. We've got to warn them about being, you know, having their minds twisted by propaganda and disinformation and conspiracy theories. Explain what conspiracy theories are. I mean, are these internet literacy programs going to be enough or do states need to get more involved in forcing the platforms to be accountable for the kind of content that they're hosting? That's happening already. I mean, they, they crack down on coronavirus disinformation. You know, I mean, I, the, the stuff that's being shared online about some of these topics is really insane. I mean, you know, it's people kind of saying bleach cures, you know, inject bleach and cure coronavirus and crazy stuff like that. Um, but I think it's very hard to actually say, OK, let's imagine a world where now we have, a, you know, an hour a week for students when they tend to learn about disinformation on the Internet. I can't even imagine the impact that would have because it seems so it, it seems so far away as a goal. And how do you convince the government that they have to say, OK, we're going to look at schools and have that as part of our 
our scheduled lessons because you just can't have one lesson about that I think you can't just say okay here's our terms lesson about what disinformation is because that'll go in one ear and out another you have to you know develop people to really consume media in a more critical way um, and I know you know media studies isn't really the trendiest you know, most popular topic and it's seen as being rather light but now when people are absolutely enveloped by online media all the time you know people spend all their time on their phones now looking at social media looking at videos you know doing stuff um i think that becomes more and more important and it's not the difference is now between how the media operated before and how the media operates that um now is before the gatekeepers were basically, you know, the editors of newspapers and big media organisations, and the government could regulate that far more easy. You know, if you lie in a newspaper, you can be sued by the person you're lying about. I mean, it doesn't stop it from happening, but there's, you know, processes there to keep everyone on a fairly even keel. Um, I mean, it sometimes fails, and we we see this fading in, in the America at the moment around, you know, the, the Trump and the Republican Party and Fox News and all that kind of stuff, but. Generally, it has worked. Problem is now the gatekeepers are basically anyone you go to or see on YouTube. It's basically your internet service provider is the gatekeeper to all the information in the world, and you get to decide what you're going to look at. And then the algorithm starts pushing you in that direction more and more and more. So you can start if you start off on the wrong foot, you will be going deeper and deeper into absolute nonsense. And if you don't, if you aren't equipped to respond to that, then you are going to get sucked into disinformation. Citizens' journalism, which is a label that you use for yourselves is said to offer a democratic alternative to conventional journalism with its credo of secrecy and competition. So how do you define Bellingcat in relation to the broader media landscape? Yeah, it's been a hard one to do because, um, you know, we do kind of work in so many different areas. But I think more broadly, you can say we're kind of um, online open source investigation collective. So we're, we work with online open source material, we investigate it. And the collective part of it is that we're not just you know 10 people in an office we have a kind of core team uh, of investigators but in a way that also goes all the way to having our audience as part of our investigation team but um the, our approach is if we we can you know with crowdsourcing for example we've been doing this with the europol trace and object sub child abuse campaign where we used our audience to ask them do you recognize what this object is a very simple task but because we could share that with hundreds of thousands of people we came up with the answers that were needed and then you go down to the kind of core of the team, which is, you know, 30 people, you know, often doing very in-depth investigations into complex subjects. Um, so when we talk about being a collective, there's a kind of whole range of involvement in different ways. And part of what we're trying to do with Balancat is as a platform, not just have the uh, kind of news and kind of uh, resources side of it where we show people how to do it but create a volunteer section where we have tasks we can give our audience, you know, can you geolocate this? Can you identify this object? Do you know what this is? And then they can respond and feed into our investigations as well as providing, um, you know, the tools to do that and explain how those tools are used. So, um, I mean, in a way, we defaulted to being seen as a media organization because we had a website where we published investigations, but we try and do so much more than that. We try and uh, we have this process we call identify, verify and amplify. So we identify kind of evidence. We then 
verify it, and then we amplify it. Now the amplification stage can be a whole range of different things because once you've verified the information you've got, you've got lots of different options. We can, like with MH17, we wrote articles, we then started doing longer reports. We did a podcast series about it. We were involved with making documentaries about MH17. Uh, we've submitted evidence to the European Court of Human Rights case. We've um, helped the joint investigation team by sharing the stuff we've been finding. So those are all different kind of amplifications of the verified information we've identified earlier. Um, so really for us, it's like saying we've done this investigation, how the different ways we can actually use this material um, reach to different kinds of audience, because we don't just see ourselves as having one kind of audience, which is kind of, you know, a, a, a news audience consuming it as news. We can see it as using it for advocacy work. We can show it to policymakers and say, you know, this is something, you know, you can actually use. It's actual solid evidence with backing and we've explained how we've come to our conclusion. We aren't just telling you what we think. We're showing you what we know and I think that's where a lot of the value comes from this and it also means that we can be very flexible about the kind of projects we're doing and I think that's actually an enjoyable thing for the people you know what we do I mean we're we've gone from kind of writing articles about MH17 to doing a podcast and now looking at doing documentary production and I think for more traditional organizations be they media or justice and accountability they can be a bit difficult to kind of understand because they kind of see everything as a separate thing when we see everything as being just one part of a almost like a network and you know really that's what the internet is about everything being part of a giant network connected together and we're just making sure we use that to its fullest extent you're clearly non-partisan in the best journalistic sense although this doesn't stop the conspiracy theorists can you say more about that and also about how you define yourselves politically. Generally, it's we've been kind of attacked because of you know um, you know claims about who funds us. Some are you know uh, simply untrue. Some are just you know George Soros. You know f you know we get the Open Societies Foundation uh, money, or we did. Yes. So you know everyone's you know of a certain type is you know very concerned about George Soros. So uh, they kind of attack us for that. Um, you know, we National Endowment for Democracy, we get funding from them. So that obviously means we're working for the CIA. Um, you know, we get money from George Soros. So obviously we're working for, you know, huge international bank account and all that nonsense. Uh, we've been accused of working for British intelligence. I mean, we had the Russian ambassador um, to the UK saying that we were part of the British deep establishment, yeah. which is completely you know comical really but you know they'll say this stuff and then you know this stuff gets repeated and because you have these kind of online communities who are you know focused on certain topics they kind of recycle these ideas and they kind of internalize this stuff i mean they they there are people who generally believe stuff about us that are completely untrue um and it's not just kind of random people on the internet but it's kind of you know stuff promoted through kind of russian state media and stuff like that that's just simply you know, untrue. It's like there's this whole thing with the um, integrity initiative, and there was a so the integrity initiative was this um, thing set up by the Institute for Statecraft, and they got into some trouble because first they were tweeting stuff that was very critical of Jeremy Corbyn to do with disinformation, um, and and then they had a lot of files uh, hacked from them um, and basically leaked publicly. Um, and in one of those files, they it was kind of like a proposal for their funding, saying we'd worked with groups like Bellingcat. So then all the 
the kind of more conspiracy anti-Bellingcat-minded folks decided that this means the Integrity Initiative was funding Bellingcat. But we've literally had nothing to do with them up until people started saying, you know, they're, you know, Bellingcat's working with them. And it's basically me saying, you know, why are we in these documents? So, but th this, they genuinely believe this. I get so, I see all the time people on Twitter say, oh, Bellingcat's funded by the Integrity Initiative. You can't listen to a single thing they're saying. And they genuinely believe this, and it's completely untrue. So, um, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic among these kind of um, online communities, these alternative media communities, how a piece of disinformation is recycled and amplified just because they ignore the people who are actually trying to just challenge that because they don't like these people and they're not part of the community. And on the political question, I would say that we're all... Um, fairly i think we're all kind of uh you know we believe in democracy we believe in the truth we believe you know that people who do bad things should be exposed and ideally you know punished for doing a bad thing um and that you know innocent people should be protected and i think that's kind of where we are broadly politically so i don't see myself as as much as i've criticized trump and the republicans in this uh, recent uh interview we i also don't see myself as being like really anti one political party or another if they're effectively you know trying to tell the truth and trying to you know be straight basically with the public and you know not screw people over but when people start going outside of that they start lying they start spreading disinformation whoever they are whatever they do you know that's going to be of interest to us and we're going to go after them that's a good note to end on i think thank you very much for talking to eurozine and best of luck with your upcoming projects i for one will be following them with great interest the text based on the conversation you've just been listening to entitled We Aren't Telling You What We Think, We're Showing You What We Know, is published in the Eurozine Focal Point Information, a Public Good. The Focal Point contains contributions on disinformation, democracy and media technologies. In our editorial, we argue that thinking about what to do about disinformation means understanding information's positive quality as a public good. Abandoning a purely reactive strategy will stand democracies in better stead. You've been listening to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you found us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which informs you about the latest content published on Eurozine and about new issues of the journals in the Eurozine network. I'm Eurozine editor Simon Garnett. I hope you've enjoyed listening.